0: The real test of has he achieved anything, where is U.S.-China policy headed is going to be answered in the coming months, not when he's wheels up from Beijing.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio are Sheila Smith, Eli Ratner, and FP reporter Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Sheila Smith is an expert on Japanese politics and foreign policy, a senior fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is the author of Intimate Rivals, Japanese Domestic Politics, and a Rising China and Japan's New Politics in the U.S.-Japan Alliance. Eli Ratner is the Maurice R. Greenberg Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. His work focuses on U.S.-China relations, regional security in East Asia, and U.S. national security policy. He previously worked in the office of Vice President Joe Biden. Bethany is a foreign policy reporter focusing on Asia. Bethany has worked as a correspondent in Germany and has reported from China, Japan, Taiwan, Turkey, and Austria. Before joining foreign policy, she lived and worked in China for more than four years. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So, this week, we've been watching very closely Trump's 12-day trip to five countries in Asia. And in many ways, it could be seen as the first sort of, quote-unquote, real test of how his America First trade policy will work. His first week in office was marked by withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and yet there seems to be somewhat of a reluctance for countries to engage in the bilateral trade deals that Trump wants. Um, Bethany, can you
2: walk us through the countries that he's going to and what he hopes to get out of talks in these countries? Sure. So his first stop was in Japan, uh, where, of course, he met with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Then he was in South Korea yesterday. Now he's in uh, Beijing. I mean what's really overshadowed, you know, the trade debate is North Korea, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um he's you know, he he's looked at um, you know, t- trade with Japan. He he made a really unusual comment about the automobile industry that doesn't seem to demonstrate exactly an understanding of where cars are made or how what, they travel around the world. Comment? What was that who,
3: what was that comment? So he basically was talking to Japanese business leaders and he said, you know, it would be really nice instead of shipping the cars to the United States that you actually opened a factory and built them in the United States. And of course, Toyota has had a factory since 1987. Nissan has 12 factories, I think. So so he's a little behind. He, He hasn't quite caught up with the reality of Japanese foreign direct investment in the United States.
2: Right. And of course, in, in Beijing, I mean, China was a big topic of his campaign, as is, as is often the case. He has really railed against the the trade deficit that the U.S. Ha, has with, with China. Uh, what he really should be more focused on is, you know, the, the import barriers, the tariffs that China has against U.S. cars and many other elements, the barriers for investment. He hasn't seemed to have raised those yet. He'll also be going to Vietnam. And I think he's he recommitted to going to the Philippines. You know, Vietnam again was another member. uh, Is a member of the TPP. If the TPP is still alive, that could be an opportunity for Trump again to talk about maybe a bilateral trade agreement. But it seems that you know what he's what's happened is he's lost a lot of credibility.
1: Right. I mean, that's what I find so intriguing. You know, the one thing that Trump loves is to come away saying that he has a success, that he has a deal. What sort of things do you think he'll end up pointing to from this trip? What will be his great successes or the deal he's cut? Or what is he trying to do?
0: Well, I would just say on the, on the China question, he is likely to claim success. He's doing at least one, if not two, business meetings uh, where there's going to be signing ceremonies. Just today, they announced $9 billion in new trade deals. There may be more tomorrow. And like Bethany said, these are largely business deals. They're not addressing the structural problems in the relationship that that is really at the root of the inequality, unfairness in the U.S.-China relationship. So I think the big question coming out of the trip is not what happens during the trip, which is it's going to be all smiles. He and Xi Jinping are going to be holding hands, signing trade deals. I think the question is, does the Trump administration declared victory and go home and drop the issue, or do they come back, pocket those concessions, but actually pursue some of these structural issues down the road? So the, the real test of has he achieved anything, where is US-China policy headed is going to be answered in the coming months, not when he's wheels up from Beijing.
1: And what are you expecting on that?
0: I think they're going to get tough, and, and there are disagreements on this. I think there will be a temptation, given, this, given the size of these deals, uh, for him to back off a little bit on his very good friend, Xi Jinping, as he calls him. However, I think you know the, there are people within the administration, the U.S. trade representative, even Wilbur Ross, the commerce secretary, and others who really believe that the market access issues and others are quite severe, uh, and China's industrial policy is, is real problematic for the future of U.S. technology and U.S. companies. So arguably the most important piece of this is not the president's views on China or the interagency dynamics in the administration that people talk about, but the American politics around this. And I think the single most important thing that has happened on the trade issue as it relates to China is that the Democrats are now trying to outflank Donald Trump. So you have Chuck Schumer writing letters to the president saying, you got to be harder on China on this. You have him in the media saying Trump's a paper tiger on China, and you have the leading Democrat, progressive foreign policy think tank in Washington, the Center for American Progress, issuing reports calling on Trump to be harder on China. So the politics of this are only going to push Trump in this direction. And I think as we get closer to 2018 and 2020, uh, he's going to have no choice but to deliver on his campaign promises.
2: What are the tools, the bargaining chips that Trump brings to Beijing? I mean, we know what we know what Xi Jinping has. He has a lot of tools and especially right now he has North Korea. What does Trump have?
0: The sources of leverage that the United States has on economic issues over China relate primarily to access to the United States market. We're still the biggest economy in the world. We're an open market. We've a, we're a free market here. But under certain circumstances and the Trump administration is starting to look at some of these measures, they could limit or set tariffs on both the import of – Chinese goods as well as limitations on Chinese investment in the United States. And I think clearly there's work being done on the, within the Trump administration on both of these. And again, I would be surprised if we haven't seen something along these lines before Christmas.
1: Does Steve Bannon's departure from the White House change at all, um, the Trump dynamic with China?
3: So it changes the dynamic, I think, with East Asia policy here in in, in, in the administration and the way in which the Trump administration seems to be approaching Asia. You know, when Steve Bannon was exiting and did that, well, did the interview that may have caused the exit, let's reverse that. Um, he was very focused on East Asia personnel picks in the Department of Defense and Department of State and, you know, singled out Susan Remind Thornton. Remind
1: what was so interesting about that interview for people who might have forgotten. So that was
3: the interview that he was he was angry. I, think, I can't remember the context of the interview, to tell you the truth, but he was angry and basically thinking that the White House wasn't being tough enough, Mm -hmm. right, on the economic nationalism front in particular, on the economic issues. And so he gave this, uh, I don't know why he had this particular relationship with this progressive magazine journalist, right, Uh, but he gave this very telling interview and he basically was frustrated. He was frustrated with the lack of attention to economic nationalism, that part of the campaign that Eli was talking about. But what, you know, jumped off the page for me is the Asia part, right, that he was very focused on all the way down to the micro level of personnel picks in both. Of those agencies. And, you know, they have to be more nationalist. They have to think about economic nationalism as our Asia strategy, right? It's it's interesting to me that, to watch the Trump administration, not only in China, but, you know, that he's still very focused on the deficit, right? And even in Tokyo, that meeting was as good as it probably could have been, given his relationship with Mr. Abe. But he was still focused on Japan's economy. He was somewhat critical of the prime minister and the public, which, you know, unsettled, I think, some people. Um, but then... The formula for fixing the deficit came at the end of that trip when he said Japan is going to buy huge weapons systems from the United States, i.e. to reduce the deficit. And he made the direct link, right? And this, this will create American jobs and it will buy more safety for Japan. And and Mr. Abe has spent some time since the president left town saying, you know, we will spend money as we see fit necessary for our defense. He's had to backtrack just a little bit.
1: And yet Abe has, seems to have this very good relationship with Trump and seems to be able to maintain it.
3: He does. And, you know, he did the very risky thing of reaching out to the president-elect before he uh, was in office, which is, you know, kind of not quite diplomatically correct. Um, and he, you know, brought him a $4,000 Golden Golf Club and um, has been very solicitous of the of the president. But I, he's been criticized for that inside, inside Japan. But many other allied leaders like, you know, the prime minister in Australia, uh, other leaders in Europe have seen that Abe's... A, a way of sort of personalizing the relationship has in fact been good for the alliance dialogue. It's it's carried over into the policy realm. Well,
2: can we talk a little bit also about Trump's personal rapport with with Xi Jinping? I mean, he tweeted, Trump tweeted something kind of a little bit horrific from a democratic perspective. You know, he congratulated Xi Jinping twice, in fact, on his great political victory in the the last party Congress. What's that about?
0: Well, I guess there's a couple ways to interpret it. One is, I think... Trump views these in the way that he views a trip to maybe a friend's country club. And you're not going to go to a guy's country club and say bad things about him. You're going to say nice things about him. So I think there's a sense here that you know, he's a visitor, Xi Jinping's a host— Uh, and he's going to play nice while he's there. And I think there's a question around whether this is sort of tactical brown-nosing to try to get what he wants or is this sort of an underlying authoritarian affinity that he seems to have with Vladimir Putin and and Erdogan and others. So I think it's unclear. They do seem to have a decent rapport. Certainly both sides, I think, in in talking to senior officials with the White House, believe that the perception of them having a positive relationship does provide some ballast in in an environment in which there's actually not a lot of good quality operation going around or, or, or a decent amount of tension and the Chinese play this through the roof in terms of the, the relationship between Xi and, and I saw one of Trump's granddaughters recorded a message singing some songs in <laughs> Mandarin <laughs> that, are, bell- that are now playing on uh, Chinese state-run media. So I think this is for them cultivating this personal tie is a way of suppressing some of the more contentious policy issues in the relationship. How
1: does this play out with um, the public in China in terms of how they view Trump?
0: That's a good question. I'd be interested in Bethany's view in this as well. She's obviously lived there and done some reporting there. I think the singular purpose, in my view, from the Chinese side or the, the, the most important goal in this meeting with Trump is to try to enhance Xi Jinping's legitimacy. He's coming out of the party Congress. So for him, being having this relationship with the American president, being seen as at least a co-equal, if not in some ways having more momentum as, as China's rising next to American decline is an important part of this. So that's the image that's being projected to the Chinese people. And I think the fact that he's wealthy is attractive to uh, certain members of the China, and and I think his style in some ways is attractive to China as well. But but their underlying feelings about Trump himself is is another question.
2: Uh, I think there's you know if you're talking about the Chinese public, there's you know you could say there's two kind of views on Trump and both of them are kind of positive. One of them would be the people who view Trump as very bad for the United States' strategic interest. You know, they see him as someone who is withdrawing the U.S. You know, from the world, but particularly from Asia. And, you know, many Chinese people think that that's a good thing. Either it's schadenfreude or they think it gives China a space, you know, to kind of take that space for themselves. And then there's another view where Trump is just himself personally kind of appealing, you know, to, to Chinese people well, they like his you know his kind of swagger they they like his you know maybe a similar feeling they kind of have towards Jiang Zemin who was um you know a leader of China in the 90s who also would sometimes just say these off the wall comments and it's such a contrast to you know most chinese politicians so there is that kind of you know feeling there i think this time around this is the first time that a us president has come to china where i think it is certainly a you know a reasonably widespread feeling to, to think that Xi Jinping, that the Chinese leader, is more powerful than the U.S. president—you know—that's that's a real feeling.
0: You know what? Yeah, and I and I think that's right, and that's going to be, you know, arguably the dominant narrative coming out of this trip, right? And I would just like to for your listeners, just to provide a little skepticism toward that view insofar as a couple data points. I mean, number one, Xi Jinping, the, pro- the situation in China is not terrific. I mean, he, he's obviously politically consolidating power, but their economy is is, is on shaky ground. Their demographics are terrible. They've, they've destroyed their economy. So it, from his sort of governance performance perspective domestically, Aside from his leadership and nationalism and some of his foreign policy bullying, uh, is quite a different story. In addition to that, I think it's important to note that public perception of him around the world is actually quite negative. Quite interestingly, the, the Pew research polls that have been done on this that have highlighted how deeply unpopular Donald Trump is around the world, turns out Xi Jinping's actually not that much more popular than Donald Trump and much less popular than leaders like Angela Merkel or certainly President Obama was. So to the extent that he's trying to sell this image and trying to, China's trying to sell this image of Xi Jinping this great leader isn't really actually being bought around the world, which is important. And then the last data point, which I think is significant, is that countries in the region are starting to push back on China collectively and individually in a way they haven't before. So even if the United States is seen as stepping back, you have countries like Japan and India and Australia doing more to push back on China's expanding influence. So yeah, Xi Jinping has uh, a lot of momentum and, and the United States is making it easier for him. But I think it's too simple to say China's up and the United States is down.
1: So what next on the trip? I mean, so far it seems to be, you know, our standard of what goes well compared to sort of, you know, pictures of Trump touching the glowing orb in Saudi Arabia or the NATO summit he attended and not committing to Article 5. It seems like this trip has not produced a lot of big headlines, which I think many would look at as good. Even his tweets have been Fairly, until maybe the last uh, 30 minutes, fairly <laughs> laid back. Um, what's coming up next? Are there potentials for big pitfalls for him,
3: and what might they be in the next few days? So, I can do a first stab at that. I think, you know, because many people in the region were also worried about how the trip was going to go, and, and they too in Asia had the NATO summit and the G20 meeting in their minds and they have tried very hard to make the trip, I think, more comfortable for President Trump. So, you could see that in Japan. You could certainly see the elevation of the visit to a state visit by South Korea. So I think there's some pe- there's some effort being made here to make this a, a successful trip for the United States. What's coming next, of course, is the APEC meeting, is the multilateral settings. And this is not where the president has felt comfortable in the past. He's It's just a lot of formal sit-downs, a lot of leaders, a lot of formality and process that he doesn't really have a lot of patience with, frankly.
1: So what are the types of things that could happen?
3: So one thing is what Bethany's al- already referred to, which is the APEC meeting, the T- TPP-11 will be meeting alongside that. And those are the countries, of course, that still are in TPP, led largely by Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Turnbull in in Australia. So that's a pretty uh, interesting focal point. The president will not be invited to that. So that will be going on and he will be isolated. The U.S., of course, will be isolated. What? the Trump administration will need to do at APAC is articulate that America First Agenda read for a, in a much more specific way for the region. And it doesn't sit well with the agenda of the rest of the region on trade and economic and even human security terms. It just doesn't sit well. So that will be an interesting place for to watch and see how they are trying to either match the tone of the region or how just how, how much isolation there is in the American position. The second is the East Asia Summit. And that I think is interesting. They were not going to go. The president wasn't going to attend. But all of the leaders of Asia will be there: Xi Jinping, Putin, Modi. Uh, it's a lineup of the who's who of the rising powers. Frankly, and. America and American allies. It's a very important meeting for an American president, for any American president. And I don't yet know what to expect out of what he's going to do since the decision was made at a very last moment. I'm glad he's going. To not have an American president there after President Obama made it a, a, a point that this is the future of Asia, this is where the decision making for the not only the region but for the globe is going to take place going forward, you can't step out of that. So the absence of a, an American voice at that for me was deeply troubling about our future and the
0: I was just going to agree with all that. I was going to add. uh, So President Trump gave a. He's giving two major speeches during this trip. One he gave last night. uh, Last night here, I guess his his morning uh, in Seoul. It was a North Korea oriented speech to the National Assembly, to the South Korean National Assembly. His second major speech is going to be at the CEO Summit associated with APEC in Vietnam, and and the administration is billing this as addressing their new concept of this free and open Indo-Pacific region. And I think the question exactly, as Sheila said, is he actually going to be presenting a vision of American leadership, continuing to support an open – trading and, and and security region, or is it going to be more of an American first, a little of the darker version of what we saw at the UN General Assembly? And I imagine there's tug and pull within the administration between the Asia policy strategists who want the former and the politicals who inside the administration who want the latter. So that's the first thing I would look for. And then the other is that Trump will be having his first face-to-face meeting with uh, Philippine President Duterte. Yes, uh, this will be this will be somewhat controversial. But you know what? I think it's a good thing that he's doing this. And again, this is going to ignite a lot of the anti-Trump simple narrative of the guy loves dictators. He's meeting with this guy who's a murderer himself, who's exacting this unlawful drug campaign in the Philippines. There's a lot of extrajudicial killings. That's all true. But at the same time, the United States is trying to rebuild and save, frankly, its alliance with the Philippines, something that was not in great shape at the end of the Obama administration and the rebuilding some rapprochement between our leaders are part of that. So Trump's for sure going to get criticism for this. I think even the best of politicians would have an impossible time threading the needle between building that relationship in a way that still allows a representation of American values and human rights, and he's obviously going to err on the former. So he'll take a lot of heat for that. Hopefully, I think this is an area where he could potentially really over in a bad way in terms of complimenting Duterte on how he's handling it or if he said something that was really contrary to usual positions on human rights. And I think that's going to be at the very end of his trip and probably the last landmine he's got to avoid.
1: Well, yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, the beginning of the Trump presidency, there was this expectation that he would build a new relationship with Vladimir Putin, which has ended up because of the Russian investigation almost going the opposite way. Um, do you think that Trump actually has the potential to sort of rebuild the relationship with the Philippines?
0: Well, he does. The difference here is that both in the Philippines and the United States, the bureaucracies at the State Department and the Pentagon and the National Security Council are not resisting as they are Trump's overtures right. to Putin yes, but actually yes. supporting people. We it. don't have an people investigation this. This is, into this, Philippines. Yeah. No, and this is, this is <laughs> an incredibly important relationship on counterterrorism. There's a major ISIS problem in the Philippines that could spread in the region, obviously, the South China Sea, and broader relations to our military footprint in the region, the Philippines is an important part of that. And the work at the working level, it's moving forward uh, well. There's a lot of work being done and the alliance is being strengthened. So this is something that I think alliance managers are seeing as being able to hold the relationship together to prevent Duterte himself from sliding and tilting too far toward China. So I think Trump's doing the right thing, but he's got to do it in a way that doesn't go too far.
3: It's probably also important to recognize that Vietnam and the Philippines, of course, are critical for the maritime dimension of our our strategy in in the Indo-Pacific now. (laughs) It's called the Indo-Pacific. Australia, Japan, India, and Vietnam, Philippines, these are all maritime coastal states who are worried about what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea. They're worried about their capacity. Japan, when the U.S. relationship soured with Duterte when he came into office, Japan stepped in to make sure that there was still communication on the maritime side. So there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle that are going to be important both in Vietnam and the Philippines as well not as not as big head headlines but pretty critical for the United States have there been any like long
2: term strategic US interests that haven't really come up or that because Trump has put such an emphasis on North Korea and uh, on trade any long-term U.S. interests that really have been overlooked? I think we can certainly mention the South China Sea.
3: Well, yeah, the the, the, the photographs of that large Chinese dredger <laughs> hitting the waters a couple of days ago, you know, brought the South China Sea right back up there. And the South China Sea situation hasn't gone away. Um, but I think the Chinese have also, and I'd like to hear Eli's thoughts on this, the Chinese have also been relatively quiet because of the Party Congress and because there's other things going on there. But I wouldn't at all... Uh, hold my breath. It won't take long for something to happen where the Trump administration is gonna to have to respond to this. I don't know if anything's gonna come out of the bilateral meeting on the maritime issues. It doesn't seem to be high on the agenda. And again he's making that big speech that Eli, you know, pointed to in Vietnam after the China. Trip, so we won't really know. Um, the one thing is the human rights piece, and that's something that's always been part um, of the United States' is articulation of our interests. He did it last night indirectly. He spent a long time uh, in that speech in South Korea to the National Assembly talking about human rights abuses and the abuses of power of Kim Jong un and the Kim regime. Um, I'd be interested to see if he carries that emphasis over in the conversations in China because I think he's now opened the door to this aspect of American foreign policy in the region that's pretty critical.
0: Yeah, and I think, Bethany, just your question. I would say I think the, the – as it relates to Trump's approach to China, this kind of transactionalism where he said on Twitter and publicly, I'm not going to give – Xi Jinping a hard time on things like the South China Sea and trade and Taiwan as long as he's helping me and us on North Korea. I think that's been a big mistake, but it does appear that that's the case and there are a lot of issues that aren't on the table because North Korea is at the top of the agenda. I think the question going forward again we'll know it'll take several months for us to know, but there are people starting to fill the Asia positions in the administration at the Defense that Department, the question. National Security Council, yeah. even at the State Department not at the assistant secretary level, but there are people going in there as well and the The question is, has it just taken the administration a long time to get their legs under them and we're starting to see the development of some kind of holistic strategy in this Indo-Pacific vision under which lines of effort and actual policies will follow as the professionals are getting into place? Or is the ad hocery and internal divisions and the unpredictability of the president himself going to inhibit those efforts? And I think there's an argument to be made on both sides, but this could be the beginning of something that looks like a more coherent approach to the region.
1: What would you look for in six months to say that, yes, it is becoming more coherent? I mean, what would be sort of the things you would look out for?
0: Well, I think one would be having to resolve an inherent contradiction between – again, I don't want to get into too wonky terminology here, but the this this regional vision that they've laid out is quite in contrast to the perception of the U.S.-China relationship that – Trump is projecting. And so if it still looks like Xi Jinping, if it still looks like Trump is saying Xi Jinping's my best friend and we're working together and he's saying Xi Jinping's a great leader and he's not taking some of the more punitive actions against China and he's still holding the US China relationship dear, then it's going to be very difficult to square that with a policy that's predicated more on working with other countries in the region, in part, to build an alternative to a China-led region. So, the U.S.-China relationship is one. I think the other is, can the administration come up with any kind of trade and economic policy in the region. The withdrawal of the, from the Trans-Pacific Partnership has been devastating yeah. to America's position in the region. And there's been talk about certain kinds of uh, f- bilateral free trade agreements. We haven't seen anything yet. But if if there isn't any kind of a trade and investment strategy, if they don't have an answer to China's vision of a China-led order, and, and, and again, China's vision for the Belt and Road Initiative, which, which some may have heard of, Uh, If there's no economic component to the U.S. strategy in the region, then we're not going to get anywhere no matter how big our military is.
1: And what about North Korea? Because Trump has made it such a cornerstone of the administration to carve out a new policy. And yet we've gone from sort of very sort of lots of rhetoric, heightened rhetoric, to then sort of what seems like, I don't know if backpedaling is the right word. Then, you know, a tweet, you know, just half an hour ago saying this isn't weakness. Um, Are you seeing any development there of something that looks like a coherent policy?
3: Well, when you said six months, what, what do we expect six months from now? Of course, we'll be smack in the middle of when we think, anyway, that there's a technological, that threshold that Eli was talking about the earlier on of, of a technological moment, either an ICBM launch or the, the testing of a hydrogen bomb, or we are moving towards, anyway, the, the idea that there is going to be some kind of where the rubber meets the road on North Korea, and six months from now we should have reached it by then. So will this strategy of in continuing to apply pressure both economic sanctions and the military side of of things as well. Will that have reached any kind of critical turning point in Kim Jong-un? and Kim Jong-un's thinking, some people think the sanctions are going to hurt and they may, in fact, lead us to a point where there's an opportunity. But again, we could go in either way on the North Korea issue. And I think before we get there, I, I wonder if the if the administration is going to be able to, to meld this Indo-Pacific strategy in the way that I think both Eli and I would like to see it. Um, it may just be that North Korea is a driver for the next six months and the Indo-Pacific strategy kind of appears in the in the interstices of what we have to do on North Korea. One very specific point, though, if you listen to Rex Tillerson's speech, the Secretary of State's speech at CSIS, he used the word predatory to talk about Chinese behavior. And so that speech, to me, is a more hard-edged look a more clear-eyed hard-edged look at Chinese behavior both economic and strategic if that's the direction of the Indo-Pacific strategy that is going to emerge then it will run into this question of just how much cooperation the Chinese are willing to give on North Korea i suspect the Chinese see that as a trade-off i don't know
0: yeah and i think there's yeah and and, and the Chinese are fully aware of that and so what they're trying to do over the 48 hours that that Trump is in Beijing is to try to pull Trump back from the brink by promising cooperation on North Korea and promising goodies on the the trade deal. So I think there is going to be a struggle between the strategists within the administration that I think are cohering around a tougher approach and and the president himself who's unpredictable at best and at times overly pro-China at worst.
1: Well, one question, I mean, we've talked a lot about the Trump administration strategy, but Sheila, you alluded to earlier that the countries also are adapting to Trump and how to deal with him. What do you see as that emerging strategy, both on sort of a simple level of you know how to treat him when he's in the country to just a, a sort of strategy of negotiations? What do you see happening?
3: Well, there's a couple of things, and the Japan example is the most obvious. So Abe has cultivated a very strong personal relationship with the President, he continues to advocate in private meetings and in these dinners and things that he has and playing golf some of the pitfalls that we're talking about here in Asia, right? So the the private meetings are the place where the prime minister tries to ease the president a little bit back to a more holistic look at the Asia-Pacific. But Abe has moved forward on trade, which is where the Japanese do feel somewhat sensitive about how this administration wants to go forward. The deputy prime minister said that we will not be negotiating with the United States a bilateral free trade agreement. This was right after the president had headed off to Seoul. He said it very sternly. They're not going to do it. So they're worried that there is going to be beyond the North Korea issue. Of course, there's going to be this trade issue looming. And so the you see our allies in Europe Europe. You see our allies in Asia start to move to a little bit away from the United States, not that the alliances are over, but to diversify their partnerships, especially on the economic front. One thing I think is not as well understood um, here is the, how NAFTA goes is going to signal very loudly, uh, to, especially to the Japanese, what this Trump administration really wants from trade you have to remember there's a lot of japanese invested here there's a lot of trading part not only the global networks of production of these these manufacturing industries but also they they export via mexico for example so what we do in the nafta negotiations is also going to affect the behavior of our asian friends and our economic partners in particular
2: so specifically let's say that the nafta survives and that the administration is able to come to a, a compromise and you know modernize it what will that say to japan as versus if if NAFTA dies.
3: So if they modernize it and it's and especially the rules of origin (laughs) stop being the focal point, um, there will be a huge exhalation of relief, right, from Japanese businesses all the way up to the Prime Minister's office, and it will say that there is some corrections going on in the Trump administration's views of how American interests are served by multilateral trade uh, agreements. Now, Prime Minister Abe may continue to advocate for TPP. I think that's not going to happen, but I think you can see the additive process of what happens in NAFTA then being referenced in a bilateral conversation with Japan, for example, or other kinds of uh, bilateral trade negotiations.
0: And I would just say some of this, not all of this is bad. So if if countries in the region like Japan are exerting more leadership, if they're bringing the region along in the absence of the United States, if they're enhancing their own military capabilities and if they're building stronger partnerships with each other, that's a good thing for the United States. You don't want it to get so far that the relationships with the United States fissure. But we were at a point probably where the United States was doing a little too much burden sharing on some of these issues. And so uh, I think it's a a good thing in small doses. Uh, We just don't want it to go too far.
1: So, final question, of course, on the sidelines of all this is the possibility of a Trump-Putin meeting along the trip, um, and, you know, Trump has said that he would like Russia's help on North Korea. On the other hand, we have the entire investigation going on here. Does it have the potential to overshadow—I mean, it's just like you talked about the sort of simplistic narrative of Duterte and Trump. Does the Trump-Putin meeting have the potential to overshadow everything else?
0: I don't think it will. Maybe, you know, I'm sure some of that will be done. But again, I think this is a meeting the president should be doing in the North Korea context. The relationship between China and North Korea is quite poor right now. China doesn't have the relationships there that it used to, but it looks like Russia may. And so my understanding is that the administration may be using Russia as a communication channel into North Korea to try to potentially unlock some negotiations. That's a good thing. Russia is not as important as China but is an important player in the overall pressure campaign and and there's also some evidence that Russian technology has been sneaking into North Korea to advance its capabilities and we want to shut down that as well. So if this is – if there is some workmanship to this meeting in terms of having Russia be both more helpful and less unhelpful on the North Korea issue, they actually are a player in this dynamic and they should be part of the conversation.
3: You know, there's other, there's larger geopolitics too for the Russian conversation with with the United States that are all about Asia, and then some of it obviously are global. Um, we need to continue to work with Russian, the Russians, on our nuclear treaty, our disarmament treaties. We need to be sure that we're not sliding so far back in the bilateral relationship that it, our national security will suffer. But I think in the Asian context, Putin wants to be a player, and Mr. Abe has had lots of meetings with Mr. Putin over the northern territories, a territorial issue, but keeping. Putin Putin from being too comfortable, I think, with she? I mean, that large, old-fashioned game of making sure that everybody has a, has a stake and that no, nobody is completely captured by somebody else, that wouldn't be a wise way to think about our relationship in Asia with you know with the Russians either. Yeah,
1: well, we may have to revisit all of this in six months to see if the strategy is really there. Um, thank you all for joining us. ER listeners, again, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Foreign Policies, The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory Podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.